New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today writes, May the earth get under your skin. May you too make your own path into nature's places. Perhaps feathers are inching their way out down the length of your arms, unifying your spirit with that of the bird, with that of the wind. I hope your imagination has found its wings and that more and more art is finding its way into your life, that you trust its place, having secured it with shells, pine cones, and dreams. Any day that arranges itself into a poem or a scuttle dance across the stage is a good one. May a sturdy, imaginative connection to the source, to the earth, be well-rooted. These inspiring words of our guest today, Patrice Vecchioni, will serve as the focus for this dialogue. Patrice Vecchioni is a poet, author, and artist. She teaches creative writing retreats and collage and poetry workshops. She has also worked with children leading classes in poetry and the imagination in elementary, middle, and high schools. She's the author of several books, including Writing and the Spiritual Life, a book of poetry, The Knot Untied, and Step into Nature, Nurturing Imagination and Spirit in Everyday Life. Join us for the next hour as we explore what it means for our creative spirit to be in touch with the natural world with our guest, Patrice Vecchioni. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Patrice, welcome. Thank you so much. It's grand to have you here. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. Let's talk about, let's go back to your beginnings. When you first started walking in nature, from my understanding, you you primarily were doing it for exercise. <laughs> primarily <laughs> and secondarily. I, I, I was a long-distance bicyclist, and that was my love. And I hurt my neck. I rode 100 miles on my 50th birthday, and that's the last time I've been on a bike. So I've got arthritis in my neck, and I thought, oh, I'm so sad. Poor me. I can't ride my beautiful bicycle and go long distances. So I went to the woods because I didn't want to exercise in a gym. 
And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> it's so funny how often those terrible things, we think, can turn into being a blessing. And th- I discovered my imagination being expanded like a balloon that doesn't pop through walking out in the woods. You talk about your imagination, and, and in, in your writing, you, you talk about art-making and also being in nature and imagination. And these are like two activities that you feel are very closely related. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize their relationship before I began walking on a regular basis. Both art slash imagination, art making, we'll put that in one, on one side, and nature are both expansive. They're enlivening. They're generative. They create more and more of themselves. They're perpetuating. The imagination wants to grow by its very nature unless it's been stymied. And the same is true with nature. I mean, even if you look at water, water comes to a wall. Well, water doesn't pack up its bag and say, forget about it. Water finds a way around. Imagination does the same thing. They're both life-sustaining, life-giving aspects of this planet. I think imagination is a part of the planet. Oh, like one of our senses. Like it's one of our senses. Oh. It's one of our ways of knowing the world. And imagination, I think I think you've stated it's like a muscle that needs to be activated and used. Right. Otherwise it gets flaccid and loses its resilience if it doesn't get used. But it's always restorable. You can always through using it, it, it gets big again. <laughs> it's very resilient. It's very resilient. <laughs> yeah. Why nature and imagination? Why how you 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 really convey to us that it Maybe flows more easily. Um, I, I know that you have a um, some phrase in your book that I just popped at me about living um, in a going out in an uncur- in the uncurtain elements. Right. I think you said, and that just really popped for me. Uncurtained elements, and I'm thinking about living in an apartment and you have straight walls and the rooms are square and and whatever, and some light comes in, but it, it it is kind of stifling in some way, but you get out in nature, and there's a different ambience. Something else is happening. It's expansive. I mean, not only are there no curtains, but there's no ceiling, and there are no walls. I mean, there are, of course, rock walls in nature, but you turn around, go past that rock wall, and there there's a brook, or there's, you know, a big vista. So nature does not hem us in by its nature. The imagination does not hem us in by its nature. And I found, I didn't plan on writing this book. It wasn't, I have a list of books I want to write. This wasn't one of them until I began walking out in the woods and found my imagination come to life as it had never before done so. Well, one of the things that you suggest is that in, that when we're out in nature, that we pay attention that we give give our attention. It, it's it's a kind of um, a different kind of attention than what we would do if we were normally at our computer 
Right. It's it's wider. It's not when you wear a computer, when I sit there, I don't really pay much attention to anything beyond that. I get sucked into that reality as if that were the whole world, which of course it's not. But out in nature for several reasons, I think. For one thing, when we're walking on a path, we have to pay attention to where we put our feet, whereas in a way different than when we're walking on a sidewalk. And also, you know, like a leaf is falling from a tree. I found out if the sun is right, you can see the leaf falling by looking at the ground because you watch its shadow as it falls. And my attention got captivated one day by watching a leaf fall. <laughs> you know, so, so my attention gets taken both more widely and also more specifically because so much is going on that as a, as a nascent nature being, I'm captivated by the slow ambling bugs. Uh, One day I heard mice talking in the bushes. I didn't realize they were mice. Now mice in my kitchen are one thing, but mice out on a trail are completely different. I heard one little sound and I thought, well, what's that? I heard the similar sound a little farther down the trail. And I stood there between the two sounds, listening, what's happening? And I was completely absorbed as if I were watching a fine film or a ballet performance, completely taken. And there scooted out one mouse. And there scooted out another one. And I decided that one mouse was saying, look what I found. Come on over here. There are great things to eat. And the other one said, hang on, I'm getting my things. I'm on my way over. Now, of course, I personified. That's human nature to put human-like qualities on nature. But they were having a relationship. They were having a conversation. I wouldn't have known that if I'd been sitting in front of my computer. Of course. And... Like that kind of attention, the leaf falling or suddenly hearing a very small sound in that mm, way. Very small. Uh, uh, there's also kind of paradox. So you're bringing your attention and focusing your attention, but you also are, are kind of in a kind of reverie. <laughs> totally <laughs> so, reverie. So what's that? That's a kind of paradox, attention and reverie. It's like an exalted kind of attention. It's very spiritual for me. Being in nature is a very spiritual experience, which it hadn't been before. Before it was like, oh, you know, it's dirty and there's bugs and maybe there's mountain lions. And um, now I go out there and, and I'm transformed by by the air and the spaciousness of nature. I walk at a 900 Um, acre park, about 900 acres, called Jack's Peak Park, near my home in Monterey. And it's it's huge. I mean, that's so much space. No buildings. There are no, none at all in that space. So nothing stops sound. And some days the wind sounds like a very old man, and other days the wind sounds like a child playing. You know, it's like my—there you go. There's an example. I hear the wind, and my imagination engages with it, becomes a relationship that can't happen with a computer. Right, exactly. And and it surprises you. I mean, you you can't direct Mm -hmm. it. It's it's You can't direct it. Thank you for saying that. I'm sorry to interrupt you. (laughs) You can't direct it. And that is what is so wonderful also. We are so used to being in control as human beings. We want control. In nature, we don't control. I mean, both the beauty and the horrible. You, You know, Nepal, another earthquake. You know, the horror that nature can put upon us. It's out of our control, but just also the beauty is completely out of our control. The other day I saw little flowers that were 
no bigger in, than the pen, head of a pin. Oh. You know, and there I am. I'm on the ground looking at these flowers. If someone walked by, they would wonder what was that woman doing crawling on the ground of nature. Well, I was captivated. Well, that just reminds me one of the things that we might take with us on a walk would be a magnifying glass. Just mm-hmm. a little, yes. little tiny glass to, like, if, if I were to see that little flower, if I were so fortunate to notice and not just plow through it and, <laughs> and crush it under my foot, but to notice it and get down, it just seems like to have a little magnifying glass and look at it more carefully would just be kind of delightful. It, yeah, I carry a little a loop, a little loop. Um, that like you would use for looking at a photograph um, mm-hmm. that I carry that with me. And for it's looking. very small. Very so, tiny. Yeah. Right. Fits in your pocket. How lovely. How lovely. And I'm thinking too, like it, w- w- many of us who go out and take a vacation and let's say we go to the Grand Canyon or some spectacular place, Bryce Canyon or wherever it is. And um, so we take our camera and we see all of this behind the lens mm-hmm. of our camera. Whereas there was a time I've read in old Europe in several centuries ago before photographs, people would take their their paints or their 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 pencils, and they would sit down and they would just draw. What and so they would sit there for a long time absorbing the scene. And paint and a pad of paper don't separate us from the experience, whereas a camera can. I mean, it it, it yeah. depends on, uh, uh, of course. I, yes, I bring it does a camera depend. a lot. Um, we'll talk about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Patrice Vecchioni, and I'd like to spell her name. Uh, it's Patrice, P-A-T-R-I-C-E, Vecchioni, V as in Victor, E-C-C. H-I-O-N-E, Patrice Vecchioni, and her website is patricevecchioni.com. And she's the author of Step Into Nature, Nurturing Imagination and Spirit in the Everyday Life. You can also get to her website through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Patrice Vecchioni, and she's the author of Step Into Nature, Nurturing Imagination and Spirit in Everyday Life. Patrice, we were just talking about maybe taking a camera with us or a little 
phone, I guess now, phones can, our little cell phones can take pictures. And I'm reminded of our good friend, Bill McDonough, William McDonough, who's an um, anticipatory design architect. And he takes his little phone with him wherever he goes, and he's done extraordinary photographs. And the one that I remember specifically that he did that just haunts me, it's, it's a picture of a drain uh, cover next to, on a curb. You know, when you see a, a curb in a city and then there are these drains mm-hmm. and it's sort of a gray drain cover and it's slotted. And there are these golden leaves mm-hmm. kind of covering part of it, just laying on this mm-hmm. gray slotted drain, cement drain with these golden leaves, and it just, like, pops, you know? You go, oh. So that's the kind of thing you're talking about. It's like noticing these things, the shadow of the leaf falling. I just was in Seattle on my book tour, and I there was a daisy no more than two inches in, around, right growing up, right from where the curb meets the street. And I had to stop with my phone as well and and catch a a picture of it. And then I was in Taos on my tour, Taos, New Mexico, and there were cherry blossoms that the wind had pushed against the fading yellow curb. And and it was just this bright pink with the fading yellow. And there was art. It was just—and I love my phone for that reason. Yes. You know, it's just—I think it's important to— Bring the phone, use it, and then put it away. Yes. Because it does um, interfere with firsthand experience. And also, it can get us to focus so much that we miss the rest of what's going on around us. So I I use mine, but I don't use it all the time um, to take photos when I'm out walking. Exactly. Well, you know, I know that you said that you—one of the places that you love to— Walk is near your house, 900 acres, uh, uh, Jack's Peak. Mm-hmm. And that's that's lovely. And you write a lot about that in the book, and it's just lovely. And a lot of people may not have access to so much wonderful stuff, <laughs> <laughs> nature, and without any buildings. And there's you encourage us. You say there are little places, little pocket parks all over. And one of the ones, and I had to look it up because I didn't know it was there, and I live close to San Francisco. It's called the Tenderloin mm-hmm. National Forest. Isn't that wonderful name? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So please describe this. In, be, I'm, all of our listeners are going to have to look it up. Tenderloin National Forest. So Describe so it. the Net Tenderloin District in San Francisco does not have a good reputation. It's known as a place of, of drug dealing and, and crime and not a place you would want to go. But a group of neighbors took 
this piece of land that had been littered with drug paraphernalia and broken glass, et cetera, and they reclaimed the space. It's kind of almost a, an alleyway. It's isn't an alley. It? Yeah. It's an alleyway. Yeah, it's kind of between. You know, it's a between in between place. And those alleyways are often, you know, not very nice places because they are in between. But also, you know, the imagination works in those in between places. The imagination thrives in the place between here and there and now and later. And so it's rather perfect that they chose this alleyway area, and there's redwood trees and all kinds of plants growing there. And so people in this difficult area can find refuge in the Tenderloin National Forest. And the people who live there care for it. And they do, which is a, such a lovely message, isn't it? That that we, we can care for it. Maybe we can't repair the entire earth from its ails, but we can care for this corner of the natural world. We can love this place. It, would, I, it is 900 acres, but I got a chance to be part of a group who cared for this. At the time, now you're was, talking about Jack's Peak. Jack's Peak <laughs> was only 500 acres at the time of the official park. It has since been grown. It has since the land was there, but it has since been taken as part of the park. They wanted the county parks wanted to put a zip line in at this park. And a group of about 25 or 30 of us gathered and through a series of a lot of hard work and good political fortune, there will be no zip line. In now, that park. what do you feel a zip line would have done to the ambience of the park? Um, so the park is a place for walking and horseback riding and picnicking, and there are 11 miles of official trails and many trails that are unofficial. So can you imagine in this very contemplative place of made up primarily of Monterey pines and some oaks, the whizzing of people in a, on a zip line, woo! through the tops of the trees, they would see neither the trees nor the forest. They would be going fast. They would be coming downhill. I imagine their candy wrappers dropping on the forest floor. There would have had to have been a lot of trees taken down um, and thusly animal habitat disturbed in order to have made this um, zip line. So it's it's a it's a basically an amusement park ride, which is a fine thing. I mean, I, I don't personally like uh, roller coasters, but I love a Ferris wheel, and you know, I, I know where to go to the boardwalk at, at Santa Cruz if I want to do that. Not in a not in a forest, right? Good, good. I'm glad you explained that. But you, so you have in a group of you have befriended this park. Another group of people have befriended the Tenderloin exactly. National Forest, and so there. There's also something. Um, it's. Uh, called, I think, Kataiki. Let's see, Kataiki. It's it's an um, native ritual, like to the northeast. I think Derek. Uh, oh, Derek, Derek Jensen. Jensen wrote right, about right, this. Right, 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 and right. It's an it's. Say right, something right, about that. right. It's and and it's the the Maori people are in New oh, Zealand. In New Zealand, are the ones who who. In an area of land where people are living, a certain group of people is responsible for the stream. Another group of people might be responsible for the trees. So that if there is distress going on in a certain area of the natural world, that group of people, it's their job to attend to that. 
and to address it with the rest of the community. So they become caretakers of that part of the natural world. As I said a little bit ago, the idea of caring for the entire earth is monumental. And when I think of that, I feel powerless because it's it becomes abstract. Earth becomes abstract when it gets too far away from something I can explore with my senses and stand on. So if we bring it in, where is the part of nature that I can give my love to? I have a lot of love to give. Right. And I want to give it not only to people and animals, but I want to be, give it to the earth because I want to say thank you to the earth for making this our home. And I think we must, as a human being, we must recognize that each of us has a responsibility to care for the earth as we can. You know, I'm thinking even in the middle of the city, oftentimes— there is a little place between the curb and the street that might be just a little place where maybe they've planted a tree or a mm-hmm. bush and 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 it collects a lot of uh, as you say paper wrappers mm-hmm. and whatever else is discarded so even if we just committed to that piece that's right in front of our house, mm-hmm. even if it's a tiny little piece right. of, of ground, right. that that's, that's if we all do that, that's good. That's, that's a lot of the earth if we all do hey, that. If we all do that, absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm also thinking of the little gardens that people do. I know when I lived in San Francisco, there was a, in the curve of the street, there was just this small piece of land. It was probably 20 by five. Uh, And so together, we all cared for that piece, and we planted it, and we we would water it and care for it. And it also created community. Absolutely. It's going to bring people together when we care for the earth. Exactly. And I want to talk about, um, you say art is optimistic mm-hmm. that's a very interesting and uh, and also you quote um Al- Alex Stefan who's an American futurist um and speaker on sustainability and he says optimism is a political act and so when you talk about art as being optimistic I'd love for you to read a little piece from your book that really highlights this this is from a section called whispering grow grow Art is optimistic. No matter what emotions a piece of art may convey, art making itself is a refusal to be plowed under by doubt, political systems, poverty, or any number of other things. Making art, this expression of belief in the act of creation and a desire to converse with spirit and and imagination to give an inner conversation form, celebrates mystery and we get to make something that never existed before. Even when shaky, the art, the act of art making is confidence in the color red. Nice, nice. And I'm thinking uh, you, you also quote uh, Kurt Vonnegut. He says, practicing an art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your soul grow. So you're really encouraging us all to 
to practice art. That's right. To go for it. That's right, and see what happens. Art is about asking questions. It's not, sometimes people think, oh, I can't do this piece of art. I'd like to paint a picture, but I don't know what I'd paint. Art is not about having the answer. It's about having the question and about wanting to see what happens if I put blue next to purple. What's what's going to happen? How am I going to how am I going to feel? You'll feel differently when you put the paint on the paper. What happens if I sing this song in a key I've never heard it sung in? You will change. You will be affected and your soul will grow. And you feel I feel so much lighter when I when I make art. I have a blog. I keep it twice a week. Right now, that's just about the only writing I'm doing. It's not the only art I'm doing. It's the only writing I'm doing while I'm touring with my book. But I look forward to that like a dog who's about to get a cookie. <laughs> you know, my tail wags when I know I get to wake up at five t- tomorrow morning and write this blog entry because something will happen that I can't plan for. And much of our lives, they're, they're regimented. They're expected. We know what's going to happen. If I tra- travel here, I'll get stuck in traffic. Or this could happen. That could, you know, these, these things we're aware of. But I never know what's going to happen when I sit down to write or to, to stitch or to make a collage. Isn't that wonderful? So you're encouraging us to just take the chance, take the leap, and let it really speak to us, through us. And it doesn't take long. It's not like you have to sit there for two hours. Fifteen minutes and something will happen. Exactly. I'm here with Patrice Vecchioni, and she's the author of Step Into Nature, Nurturing Imagination and Spirit in Everyday Life. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Patrice Vecchioni, and she's the author of Step Into Nature, Nurturing Imagination and Spirit in Everyday Life. Patrice, we just talked about art being optimistic, but also nature is optimistic. (laughs) And I I just love this idea uh, of nature being optimistic. And can you can you also share with us a bit of reading about nature being optimistic? Sure. Resilient, relentless nature isn't a pessimist. Determined plants push up between the slivery cracks in the concrete, making their leafy way to the light where they thrive. If nature is curtailed in one way, it does its best to find another over and over again. One way to maintain the spirit of optimism, in addition to making art, is through being on the land, out in the uncurtained elements. In the Talmud, it is written, Every blade of grass has its angel that bends over it and whispers, Grow, grow. Wherever I go in the natural world, I see evidence of such angels in the perpetuation, continuation, and in the cycles of return. I am convinced of the spirit of optimism by light, its daily return, and the sun's ability to warm my my back on the coldest winter day. Beautiful, beautiful. 
So that that reminds me a bit too of about, about the thought of meandering and wandering, and and you you mentioned that you write a blog regularly, and you don't know where it's going to take you. Right. So it happens in both art making and in in being in nature, and I think they complement each other. I think if we can wander out in the natural world, it can make it easier, can facilitate the wandering that's necessary in art. You know, we're not not used to wandering these days. How many people just wander around? And what happens when we wander both in art making and in the natural world is the mind gets to Mm, I think relax my, it gets to have some ease. We're not focused on the end. Where am I going? It's not about where I'm going. It's about where I am. You know, we hear that said so many times, the be here now. It's wandering is a great way to be here and there now because you, you, your feet come upon this. And even when I walk the same trail day after day, I never walk the same trail. It's an impossibility. The wind is different. The air is different. The smells are different. I'm different. And so when you wander, you get to notice both who you are and where you are. And in art making, wandering has a particular function because the reality is that in art making, if you plan where you're going to go, the art more than likely will be stilted and it will be contrived. I believe the nature of making art is larger than any of us who ever engage in making it. And we tap into what Jung called the collective unconscious when we make art. We dip into that which is larger than ourselves, and I find I get ideas that I would have never consciously arrived at. So I let go of control when I'm in the process of making art. If I'm in the process of making a lasagna, I don't let go of so much control (laughs) because I know what's necessary to make that come out as I'd like it to come out. But when I'm making art, I don't know. And the great thing is, too, if I make something, if I write something or or I make a collage and I don't like it, Well, I have a very nice fireplace, and up it goes. (laughs) So it also keeps me from thinking that anything I do is precious because it's not. It's not precious. If we think it's precious, we remove ourselves from the essence of art making, which is the essence of wandering. Well, you you know, uh, Patrice, that reminds me. Recently, we had an interview with uh, a man, Greg Lavoie, and he tells a story about an art teacher who gave two assignments to their, his students. And one assignment was he, he assigned them. He was teaching uh, uh, making pots, I think. And he said, make the perfect pot. So that was the assignment to one, one set of students. And then the other set of students had the assignment of make as many pots as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And then after they did these assignments... They put them all on a shelf, and they had some outside people who didn't know anything about the assignments um, what um, mm. to judge them mm. and to say uh, which ones did they feel were the most beautiful. And always they chose the one where the people were just making lots of them. They were playing. They were playing. And that's the other thing that wandering is about. It's about the experience of play. 
which adults don't do enough of. Even children these days, frankly, aren't doing enough of it. Um, it's about experimentation and curiosity, the joy of the act of doing. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. And now you brought up children. You've taught poetry to children or had not teaching them poetry, but allowed them to express themselves in poetry. And so are, are you still doing any of that I work? do. Okay. I do. Mm-hmm. Talk about children and their need for imagination. Well, you know, I've done this for many years since I was 19 years old. And when I began, I'd say the first 20 years that I did this work, I found children were ready to go. They were curious. I'd say, write a poem about what's at the bottom of your heart or imagine how the world began. And their pencils were ready because they wanted to play. They wanted the freedom. They wanted to see what would happen. They were curious, and their imaginations were vivid and strong. Now, recently, I've taken kids, for example, outside. We'll lie down, and we'll look up at the clouds, and I'll ask them, what do you see? And they first you know, furrow their brows. Then they look at each other. They're uncertain what I'm asking for. And they say, we see clouds, Miss Patrice. We see clouds. And I'll say, don't you see the man in the top hat carrying a dozen balloons? And they don't know how to see the possibility in the clouds. Because the way school, public school is structured and has been ever since um, Bush with no child left behind, children have been ingrained with the idea that there is always one right answer. When we make art, when we write poems, there is never one right answer. There, there's never a perfection, just like the story that your other guests told. There is not perfection. There's this possibility and that possibility. Curiosity has to be at the helm. You have to wander to get there. And if you're afraid, as children these days often are, that there is a right answer and you don't have it, you're not going to be able to create. And that's what I've seen a lot now. It's not across the you know, board, true, but it's a lot more effort for me. I don't teach that much anymore because it's so hard. It's too difficult to get children to be willing to believe that they have not the right answer, but their right answer. Right. It's a, a little depressing. Their, their lives are very structured in, in some Very structured way. In, yeah. every way, in every way, really. Uh, you know, the, the, we need structure to make art, but we need a lack of structure to use imagination, to think imaginatively. Right. A structure of such as time we need in order to make art. But for children, they need to wander, and they need to daydream. There's new work coming out that's talking about the incredible importance of daydreaming. It will support linear thinking. If we have a society of people who do not know how to imagine, we will have no inventors. We will have no discoveries for new medicines. We will have no innovative architects, no Frank Lloyd Wrights, um, no incredible photographers, no Bernice Abbotts. We will be a stymied society because we need to think freely. And it's a big, It's you can hear from the tone of my voice, I I'm sure. I, 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 I've done some reading about the design of schoolrooms, mm-hmm. and they're making them with less and less windows mm-hmm. so that children won't be tempted to look out the window and daydream. 
And it's it, it to me is formerly a school teacher. I mean, I used to teach school, so I'm just like appalled by this that that we're we're not taking in the full picture. Well, we don't. We think that children are empty. We treat them as if they are empty and they need to be vessels that are filled, and that is not the reality. Children come into the world vibrant. And they come into the world full of creative possibility, and they get, they're observing, they're like sponges, taking everything that adults aren't even paying an iota of attention to. They're taking them in, and they're putting them together. Learning is our human nature. We don't have to make children learn. It is the desire of of being a child, of being an adult. I want to learn more all the time. At 50, almost eight years old, I'm always learning. And that's what kids are doing too. So we have to rethink how we are organizing education. And I've been doing this work with kids for over 35 years. So I have a little bit of experience. To say that they're empty is wrong. To say that they have a wealth of possibility is more, It's open the window. Let in the wind. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. One of the things that you mentioned in the book that I just delighted me, you, you mentioned something about bees, and you just have this little section on bees. And, of course, bees right now are very, very important, and, we, and they're, they're having some problems. And you quote uh, poet Carol Ann Duffy, and she writes that bees are the batteries of orchards, gardens, Guard them, you know, and I, I love that. And and you tell a story of um, a particular man, a poet from uh, Russia, and can you can you tell that story of him? Uh, Osip Mandelstam was a Russian poet who unfortunately ended up in the gulag um, for being a poet because what he wrote was out of line with um, what was acceptable at that time. But he wrote um, wrote many beautiful poems, and one of them is um, a poem about bees. And he says, For our joy, take from my palms a bit of sunlight and a bit of honey, as Persephone's bees would have us do. Now, when he was captured and put in prison, his wife, Nadezhda Mandelstam, who wrote an incredible book about her life with him called Hope, against hope. She had memorized his work. And so, though much of his poetry was destroyed, she was able to save his work because, as I say in the book, there is no flammable paper in the mind. She had retained his his words. And um, he says, all that is left for us is kisses, the downy ones like little bees. Mm. I love that. that I, I just love that. <laughs> and at the end, his last stanza is, Accept then my wild gift of joy, this simple necklace made from withered bees that died while turning honey into sunlight. That reminds me, I think, is, I'm not sure who, a poet who writes about bees making honey in my heart. It's Machado. Machado. Uh, Oh, thank you. Anoche cuando dormir soñé bendita ilusión que una colmena tenía dentro de mi corazón. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamed marvelous error that I had a beehive here in my heart, and the golden bees were making sweet honey and white comb out of all my old failures. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for go, going to the original because it's so lyrical. Isn't it beautiful? Oh, it's so beautiful. It's a Spanish poem, this, Antonio Machado. Oh, so beautiful, so beautiful. I'm here with Patrice Vecchioni, and she's the author of Step Into Nature. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Patrice Vecchioni, and she's the author of Step Into Nature, Nurturing Imagination and Spirit in Everyday Life. And we're talking about that stifling the, the creativity and imagination of children. And you've had a teacher once who gave you an assignment when you were young. And can you can you tell about that experience? Sure. I was in the fifth grade, and um, he asked us to look out a window of a room of our house and, and draw or paint what we saw. And I looked out the picture window of my living room and then realized I wasn't able to see enough from there. So I went outside and sat in the ground on the dirt. And then I began actually painting, as it were, using the, the dirt. And so I, I, I made it into the roof of the house across the street that I saw, and I put it on the ground and it was the perfect color and I was so excited that I felt I had made a discovery and you you added trees that yes. actually weren't there you, right, you made them I got up. carried away because it was I was so into doing drawing with my fingertip and the dirt it was like using a chalk pastel and so the next day I brought my picture in and I was so proud of myself and I showed it to him and and he looked at me askance he was unimpressed and you know kind of rolled his eyes and and I was disappointed but I learned something very important from that I hadn't I didn't need his approval and, you know I had it inside of me my own approval which is a very important thing for a child and for anybody who's interested in pursuing art at a certain point you cannot rely only on outside approval now when i was writing my book step into nature i had five readers and i had fine editors that's very important of course but there's also we need to have inside of ourselves a, a, a knowledge and awareness of our own authenticity of when we're on and when we're off. And to not ask for approval, we may ask for a confirmation, but to not ask for something we need to give ourselves, which is a sense of, does this work or doesn't it? If you need to ask, you know, is this line working here? That's very, very constructive. But with this experience with Mr. Thorpe, I knew I had done something valid. Now, was it the greatest picture ever painted? Of course not. But that wasn't the point. I had made a discovery as a child that served myself. 
And I gave it away almost by asking, by showing it, waiting for his approval. You know, what I, I'm struck with in that story, when you were describing sitting on the dirt and being totally absorbed in painting with the dirt, that what you were doing, you were in touch with your own delight. That's right. And we need that. We need that. And that cannot be denied. That lived inside of you. And in fact, that it sparked something because it stayed with you. You know, you say, I know, I'm almost you know, 58. 58 and, it's still, and, and it's still there. And it, it also reminds me of a early mentor of yours who, who said something to you. It was so beautiful. He said to you, this, this lovely older man said, you are are bright in the way starlight is. Do you remember that? Yep. He said it to me from the time I was a little girl. I, I knew him since I was born. He was a friend of my parents, and I think he had an observation that my parents were not able to recognize who I was as a child. They were uncomfortable with my joy and my expressiveness. So he was the mirror I that because of we do need that. We need it, especially as children, as young children. We need to have a sense of, am I who I think I am? Who am I? And we need, and he mirrored to me. Now, no one had ever spoken to me that way before. The first time he said it, I was a very little girl. You know, you're, you're bright in the way of starlight. What? I, I, I didn't understand until I got older. And he said it repeatedly throughout my life. He lived in New York City, which is where I'm from. And when we moved to California, I would go and see him periodically. And he would say it every time I saw him. You're bright in the way of starlight. You're like a star. But he didn't mean uh, Hollywood. He meant the the light. And it was, it, I needed those words because the, my home life was not providing, nor was my academic life as a child, providing me the kind of reinforcement that I that I needed. Well, I often think that this is what grandparents are for. Yes, <laughs> you know, right. You know, and, and we can all be that kind of grandparent mm. to children as we come in contact with them to under to to support their delight in life. And and so we're different from parents because parents feel the obligation that mm. our kids must have good manners and mm. they must you know do all of these things. They feel very constrained by the the way that they need to raise these civilized children, so to speak. So they have a different role in some ways, which is they, really valid. And it's it really is valid. important. I'm not putting it down. It is very valid. But this is where the village comes in. Yeah. That there are others who are not ha- so constrained, and and we can be that that instigator of delight or support in delight in their individual voice and and how they're seeing the world and just just allow it to to I want to use the word rampage. Oh yeah, it needs to be wild like that with fingerprint, you know, finger painting, messy. Right. Messy. Yeah, I love it. Messy. Yeah, really messy. Yeah, and, and and have them do plays and say, oh, let's make up a play. What do you think? Let's do a magic carpet ride. What do you think? Where are we going to go? You know, whatever it is. And just Taking the lead from the child, which, which is really important that the child gets to be at the helm. And I'm reminded here, too, like, all right, let's go to the other 
end of life. Mm-hmm. And you you know, where where we've been constrained all of our lives, it's never too late to participate in art making. Mm-hmm. And you tell this beautiful story of your father. Yeah, and my the bird, dad. The bird bath. Yeah. My dad, who died almost about two months ago. Who? Um, oh, I'm so sorry. Who yes. I miss every day. Um, he he wanted to be an artist all of his life, and for his own because of his own demons, he was unable to really do that. But when he a few years ago, he decided to repaint a bird bath that was in disrepair. Now, about how old was he at this time? Oh, he was ninety years old. <laughs> <laughs> Ninety yeah, years old. 90, okay. 90, 90, 91. And um, he lived with my sister, and they live in the woods. And um, so he began painting this and, and repainting it and priming it and adding bits of shell and, and little painting bees on it and made a three-dimensional crow that could watch the live brethren come to drink. My dad spent three months making this thing. Now, this birdbath, I brought it to my book launch at Bookshop Santa Cruz because I was going to read that piece, and I wanted the audience to see how small this birdbath was. I had to actually, there were, it was a very crowded event, so I had to put the birdbath up on a table because the thing stands only about two and a half feet high. Uh-huh. And the bowl is no more than a foot wide. It was very small, but my dad relished the time he spent working on it. And it's now in my backyard, and it's a very, very beautifully done paint painting of, of the birdbath has been restored. How beautiful. And then I'm going back to the thought of the bees. And you remind us that in, in traditional beekeeping— there is like the beekeeper will go and talk to the bees yeah, and tell them the news of the day. It's called he, telling the bees. Right. And 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 would feel that the bees would need to know. Now listen to that kind of relationship with the natural world. It's so profound and it's old. That you would have that kind of relationship with with your bees. That they because bees, in fact, are very sensitive to environment. And if they're going to make honey, they need to feel secure. You need to feel safe. And so there the beekeepers would tell the bees what was happening. And then if a beekeeper would die, there were, black cloths would be put over the beehives. And so the bees would know what had happened. But an amazing thing frequently happened that the bees would show up at the funeral of the beekeeper. And this isn't true only of bees. It's also true of elephants, Elephants have been known to show up at the funeral of someone who had been kind, who had cared for them. So we're talking about knowledge that is far more vast than any kind of linear way of knowing the world. And this is the kind of knowing that is required when making art, that we trust the world of dream, the world of prayer, the world of unpredictability, the world of the inexplicable and of synchronicity, that we allow that in, then we have a much stronger foothold to stand on the earth with. I would love to go out on a reading, and I would love for you to read about a natural ceremony that nature does with rain. Yeah, we think that of humans as being the only ones who partake in ceremony, but nature has her own rituals that are absolutely elemental. Consider rain. First, a few drops, and then comes the downpour. 
The clouds deposit their wealth of water, and the rain stops slowly, much as it began. The earth is saturated. Birds sing most joyously then, especially after months of no rain. The sun's return begins a new ceremony. Out in my woods, that rain brings the banana slugs, and eventually, if we've had enough winter rain, a plethora of mushrooms push the soil out of the way and provide those same banana slugs something to feast upon. Each rain is different, but there is a pattern of behavior to rain showers that has a special significance. Not that the rain, quote, thinks of what is happening as ritual, but I wonder if the birds might. Patrice, thank you so much for being on New Dimensions today. Thank you. It's just been the absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Patrice Vecchioni, and she's the author of Step Into Nature, Nurturing Imagination and Spirit in Everyday Life. If you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, patricevecchioni.com, and she spells her last name V-E-C-C-H-I-O-N-E, Patrice Vecchioni.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3544. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.